I think that a lot of the show was kind of channeling or uh, me reacting to what was going on politically in America. I'm Mark Olson, and that's Nicholas Winding Refn, the Danish filmmaker best known for Drive, starring Ryan Gosling, talking about his new series on Amazon Prime, Too Old to Die Young. It's a Los Angeles-set crime story about a crooked cop turned avenging assassin, played by Miles Teller. And Nicholas recently joined me from his home in Copenhagen for this episode of The Real. I killed a woman the other night. I didn't feel any guilt or remorse. I just felt empty. Is that how you feel? No. Nicholas, I have to tell you, just the feeling of the show, what it kind of puts you in some kind of a trance, I found that it really sort of like tore me down to kind of slowly build me back up. And can you describe what you wanted from that feeling, like how you kind of want people to feel as they're watching the show? Well, I've always made a kind of a point of never necessarily understanding what I would like to do, because if I did, I probably wouldn't do it. So it's more of like a conscious way of not being able to answer your question that clearly, Mm -hmm. (laughs) other than one of the um, opportunities with creativity is to experience some kind of odyssey with it. And of course, what to me was very interesting in doing Too Old to Die Young was the amount of time I had that I was not confined to the what I was used to with a, like a 90 to two hour frame. Here I had a frame that was endless. And the only reason why I stopped was because I ran out of money. And can you tell me more about that? I mean, you've described this as a 13 hour movie. I think most people want to call it a television show. You've at times just described it as streaming. How did you come to want to explore this new way of telling a story? Well, it was actually um, when I was doing The Neon Demon in L.A., you know, God, three years ago, there was a lot of, like, interest in moving into television generally in a big part of the industry. You can kind of say it was a time where Netflix had solved a certain equation of a new format, which was this instant access. And while I was making my film, I started to kind of have this idea. In a way, it was similar to how I started making films when I made this, what is called the Pusher Trilogy, which were three Danish films about crime that had the same environment, but were different storylines. Now, they were all feature movies, but in a way they were very serialized or they were made for a longer format in a way. So, regarding Tool to Die Young, I really wasn't very interested in television because I don't watch television, but I was interested in this streaming, this evolution of this beam around us that we lock off and lock out and lock in. And I can see how my kids use entertainment where they're much more in control of it because it just coexists with them. And so I decided with the blessing of the studio, of course, to basically not go at it as a, what it would be a, an hourly television show, but more just one long stream. 
And then afterwards, editorially, I would divide it up in different pieces, like you would do a book. And in the end, it just turned into be a, what I call a 13-hour movie. And now in creating the show, you worked with the writer Ed Brubaker, who's known for graphic novels, as well as Haley Gross, who's known for her work in video games. Do you feel like their experiences and like where they were coming from, that that's a new form of narrative, a new form of storytelling that sort of helped you in creating this streaming narrative? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were a great team. You know, we were like a, a band. My co-creator is Ed Brubaker because... Once I had the concept and the approach, knowing that the amount of time that needed to be produced, but also working with a writer who was very used to short format, like one to two page format storytelling. So I really love that kind of ability to be able to tell something so direct and yet within a very confined time frame, a lot shorter than what I'm used to. So we started basically just developing based on this idea I had and this title that I came up with. And then um, I went to Paris, had a tarot reading about the show and what I was doing with it. And he said there was a missing element in the process. And of course, we were missing the female division, like everything has to have a mother and a father. So Halle Gross, who both had worked on television, but had really been developing and writing video games, came in as the third band member. And I think the three of us really benefited from our own abilities to create the show, or should I say, movie. (laughs) (laughs) And now you were in production for some 10 months, I mean, much longer than when you've made a conventional feature film. And just from a practical standpoint, what was that like? What was it like to be working on a single project for that period of time? Well, I shot it in chronologically order. So it was a bit like painting every day. After six months, you go a little cuckoo because you're like, is this going to (laughs) end? And then after eight months, you realize you still have two months. But... It's a kind of a odd situation because, of course, it was immensely difficult. And because I kept on changing every day, there was writers meeting every evening, practically, throughout the production because of keeping up with what I was changing during the day. And if I hadn't changed it or we had to prepare for future narratives that needed to be adapted or changed to what I was doing, we needed to constantly roll the giant rock up the hill to make this film. And in the end, it was an enormous, fulfilling experience. I mean, I loved every minute of it. I also went a little crazy once in a while, but in a way, isn't that what that process should be like? Well, I recall when you were making Neon Demon, there was a very intuitive aspect to the storytelling. Like Where the movie ended up wasn't exactly where you began, and I think that's the same with Too Old to Die Young, but given the scale of the production, was it difficult to work in that way? Was it hard to remain free and open to where you wanted the story to go? No, because I made it like I would make my movies. I was able to produce the show myself, so... We were a very um, small unit in a way, a little satellite circling around the orbit. And I decided not to make it any way different than I would have done my 90-minute movie. 
because to me there is no difference. Streaming is another canvas that now coexists with the theatrical world. And when you make something, at least in my opinion, you have to be able to transcend it from the size of the iPhone to the size of a stadium. There's no longer any differences. And if you don't take advantage of both extremes, it's like handicapping your abilities to really utilize this digital revolution. And how do you do that, especially here where you were working with cinematographer Darius Kanji and then also with Diego Garcia? How are you considering those images that people might be watching on something as small as a phone and might be watching in something as big as the main screen at Cannes? Well, the irony was that between every setup, Darius and I would take our iPhones and use them as our viewfinders. So the whole show was conceived with the camera of the iPhone in terms of the visual sense. Had you worked like that before? Like, what did it feel like to you to have the iPhone as your viewfinder like that? Well, I'm a big iPhone (laughs) fan. I've had every single cell phone you can imagine. It's actually how me and Darius met. We were at lunch at Cannes a couple of years ago, and we were seated next to each other, and we didn't know each other. And, you know, it was for Kodak, which kind of ironic because we're both very fans of the digital revolution. But after, you know, the awkward silence of, I like what you do, I like what you do, uh, standard discussions, what kind of bonded us was I started asking him how he felt about his telephone. And it turned out he was equally as in love with his iPhone that I was. And so when I got the show financed, And then before I turned it into a movie, I kind of told him that I was going to do it as a television show. And he agreed to do it. But the minute that we started working together, he kind of got this idea that I'd had of really turning it into a movie. And so we just approached it like a movie. And now really anyone who sees the show, I think one of the first things that they talk about is simply the pacing of it, that there's something... I don't want to say slow in a pejorative way, but it's very slow. It takes its time. It kind of, as a viewer, it forces you to sort of sync up with it. And what was it that you liked about that kind of pacing and that made you want to tell the story in that way? Well, it's like War and Peace. You know, it's a a giant canvas. But we live in a world of speed. We live in a world of instant satisfaction, instant click, instant information, even our relationships are becoming instant. So there's something very interesting when you counter what the usual pace of our lives are, especially in entertainment. You know, most entertainment in terms of the mass media, which is a part of what streaming usually is supposed to apply to, is just throwing shiny objects around and please throw as many as you can so our attention is constantly diverted away. But... Part of creativity is also the meditation of the process. Like if you go to a museum, if you listen to music, a lot of it is how you essentially control your own rhythm based on what you're experiencing. And I thought that with this, it could be interesting to really almost like hypnotically just ease the heartbeat, which oddly makes people enormously uncomfortable very quickly because we're so used to pace. We're so used to being diverted. 
just like if there is silence, we start to get panicking almost because silence means there's something wrong with our system, our minds, because silence is not part of our everyday experiences generally. One of the things I find so remarkable about the series is just how free it feels that simply even just the episode length, that a number of the episodes are about 90 minutes long. They're essentially a movie unto themselves. The final episode is only 30 minutes long. And especially the fact that in the second episode is almost entirely in Spanish and you're largely meeting characters that like you haven't already encountered. And so that for you, was that one of the things that you liked about this long form storytelling was how free you were to, with every aspect of the process, to do what you want and to follow those creative ideas. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was totally in self-indulgence in that sense. I mean, I loved it. And what's interesting about streaming in terms of the opportunities with it, and a lot of my kids already doing it, but if you compare it to the invention of film, you know, when you look at certainly the golden age of silent cinema, there's also a sense of the same freedom where there is an exploration and an interest in to push the boundaries of what is possible. And streaming has allowed that same opportunity now. I always say it's like the third Lumiere brother, you know, instead of the camera, he came with a file and making it, it was fantastic because you truly were free. And because I had complete freedom to make what I wanted to make, I really approached it like you would almost write a very, very long odyssey and take it to the full extent. And then afterward would decide where we would divide up the uh, editorial chapters and by giving them inconsistent lengths and bypassing all the tradition of normal narrative that people would tell you should be done, you automatically unleash yourself from any norm. And now were there any other long-form shows that you considered a reference or an influence? In particular, to me, it always struck me that the show just feels like this kind of wonderful hybrid of Twin Peaks The Return and True Detective. And I'm wondering if either one of those were things that you watched or influenced at all by as you were making the show. Well, I don't watch a lot of television, so I didn't watch neither of those shows. I more approached it just an extension of me. Look, I've been very clear that creativity is self-indulgence and, and narcissism and megalomania and arrogance and you are the orbit of the sun you know you are the foe you are the the sheer existence at the same time you are combined with enormous amount of exposure and um, the idea that what you do is essentially 100 percent extension of you i know this is the third story that you've told, that you've set in Los Angeles. What is it that keeps drawing you back to wanting to set films, stories in LA? I mean, I love Los Angeles. I love living there. I love shooting there. It is probably my favorite place to shoot. I don't know. It's an imaginary world. It fits to my sensibilities. I probably think that LA, if Hans Christian Andersen was alive today, he would probably write about Los Angeles more than any other place. It's kind of a magical environment. And like me, I'm an entertainer, meaning I'm here to entertain you. 
you know, I'm a, I'm a showmanship. Too old to die young is meant to entertain you and and thrill you and excite you and scare you and frustrate you and all these things that's part of the entertainment process. But LA as a background is just very, um, to me, it just there's something in it that keeps drawing me back to it. And I don't know how sensitive you are to spoilers about giving away some of the things that happen in the show, but it, to me, it's so interesting where it begins as, and I think it's been presented to people, sort of very hyper-masculine, essentially sort of like cop crime drama. But as the story goes on, it sort of shifts towards this more feminine characters and a more sort of feminine mode of storytelling. And so in some ways, like for you, like which characters is the story about? Like who is Too Old to Die Young about? (laughs) Well, it's, it's an extension of all of me, I guess. But I think that a lot of the show was kind of channeling or uh, me reacting to what was going on politically in America. I mean, um, we were writing the show during the election and we shot the show after the election. And I used, because every day became my reflection of what was going on and the kind of insanity that was spreading throughout. And part of that was that for me, it was this notion that the downfall of man and the rise of the woman as the ultimate power as the as the savior in a way so many of your early films are so hyper masculine focused on their male characters and then from your film drive which starred ryan gosling and carrie mulligan onto neon demon with Elle fanning and now moving into too old to die young you've begun to give more attention to the female characters in your story to a somewhat sort of feminized style of storytelling how conscious is that like how aware are you of this shift towards female characters and a more feminine point of view? Oh, God, if I knew, I wouldn't have to go to therapy. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I mean, I've always wanted to make... I mean, I'm not a very masculine man, um, and I always look at the people that I work with as being very feminine characters in a way. Um, But, of course, especially doing Bronson... And, and Valhalla Rising, which are very male-driven as protagonists are all, all men, where the Pusher trilogy was all about catching authenticity and whatever that meant. But that was more like a, an experiment in a way. But once with Drive, introducing that element of the love story between Carrie Mulligan and Ryan Gosling and working with that and, 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 and continuing that it was like just a natural evolution where I, where I had come from originally of just recreating authenticity to now it became hyper-reality. And from then on, I just followed instinctually whatever I had to come into, only God forgives, that went into Neon Demon and then became too old to die young. To me, it was so striking. I saw some red carpet photos from when you were presenting Too Old to Die Young at Cannes, and you were with your wife and your two daughters, and you just looked so happy. You were just beaming with just happiness. <laughs> and you were presenting episodes four and five of the series, which are two of the darkest, 
most violent, most upsetting <laughs> episodes in the series. Can you tell me a little bit about what that night was like and what you were kind of like going through in obviously having this sort of like pride and happiness with your family, but then about to present this very, very upsetting piece of work? Well, I mean, going to Cannes is just a very uh, electrifying experience. And there was both a historical aspect to it this year because in a way it was the new can because it was the future. It was the idea that cinema could be something else that we had never really known. It could be streamed. It could be longer than we had ever imagined. And the idea that I didn't want to show episode one or two. I wanted to show the heart of the show. So I decided to show four and five because that's how my kids view entertainment. They just search around, drop in, seek around. If they find it interesting, they'll stay. And then they'll go back. They'll continue. And so there's a form of freedom in just how to project it that was very gratifying, especially at Cannes, just because of this place. This is, you know, this is the holy mountain of cinema, but this is new cinema in a way. And then being there with my family and... Um, my kids being old enough to accompany me. Actually, it was the first time my eldest daughter saw anything I'd ever done. <laughs> so <laughs> my wife was a little concerned if she would freak out, but she found it very entertaining, and she just turned 16, so I knew I had done something very, very right. But it's always frightening. That must make you really proud. That must, be, that must feel good. Oh, it was. It's a very emotional experience, but walking up there and you're always nervous and I'm petrified when they screen the movies. You have to sit there, but I sit with my eye closed and holding my ear so I don't hear or see anything for like two hours. And then afterwards, you kind of wait. Of course, the reaction, thank God, was fantastically beautiful. And every stood up and applauded for six, seven minutes and then I had to talk into a microphone and and that was kind of weird. <laughs> but I told them that the reason why Miles Teller was playing Martin was not that he was just a brilliant actor, you know, one of the best young actors around, but that he looked like Elvis. And the idea that I had made a film about America starring Elvis was just, in a way, the ultimate high. So it was a very satisfying night. Just for myself, one of the big discoveries of the series is the actress Christina Rodlow, who plays Yuritsa. Her performance is just fantastic. And the way she just sort of like takes command of the screen and really in some of the episodes just completely takes over the story is really exciting to watch. How is it you came to discover her and to work with her? Well, we started the casting process very early. I mean, I had only written five of the scripts when we started casting. So we casted for a year before we started shooting. And um, Miles Teller was, was the first one that kind of came on board. But all the other, predominantly Eritza and Janie, which, you know, is Miles Teller's girlfriend in the show, Nell, Tiger Free, they were found in long searches. <laughs> hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people were... Thousands were even sometimes looked around. Sometimes even globally, you would be casting in different countries to find those few needles in a haystack. Because the reality is, is that 50% of anything in a movie is your casting. 
So it's a process that I spend a lot of time on. And then once you have someone, it becomes a puzzle of how to put them together. It's like, then I take all the photos of the people alike, and then you make the final decisions. When I feel that there, the puzzle has been solved of what face goes with what face. But Christina was, she was the last one that I was able to find. You know, I worked with these two really good LA casting directors. Nicole and Courtney. And by the time we got to Yoritsa, they had access, probably seen every single actress that had dark hair <laughs> in the world, it felt like. And just ironically, she was just right across the border. And she came to LA for the final casting, and I hired her right away. And now another scene that people can't help but talk about is in episode five, and it's the car chase that you've set to Barry Manilow's Mandy. And it's just a beautiful (laughs) sequence. And why that song? Why did you get the idea to set a car chase to Mandy? Well, I've always loved Barry Manilow. I was even looking to use Mandy in the Neon Demon, but I just couldn't find a place. Because actually Mandy was one of the major turning points in me changing the narrative for Jenna Malone's character in The Neon Demon. And that's when I decided not to kill her because I had been listening to Mandy all night and I kept on thinking about Jenna Malone's character. So I decided not to kill her the next day. So I've always wanted to use the song and I'd had this idea to do a car chase between an electric car and a muscle car. Because, I mean, I don't know how to drive a car, but I thought it was kind of funny that one is electric and one is gas. And just the idea of the contrast between the two sounds is just, I find that really, really hilarious in a way. And when we were then putting it together editorially, because the idea of a car chase that goes on and on and on, you know, if you're chasing someone across the state, eventually you would start listening to music. Because, I mean... <laughs> I mean, you got to kill time one way or another as you're chasing each other. And so I thought, well, this is where they argue about Mandy. So it was a perfect place to present it. And then just the last thing I want to ask you, Nicholas, is now that you've made this sort of epic streaming saga, is there any going back? Like, do you feel that you've crossed over somehow in your storytelling? Could you make a more conventional 90-minute, two-hour movie? Or now that you've been freed up by telling a story in a streaming way, do you feel like you can go back? Oh, oh, absolutely. Um, I plan on going back next year because it's almost like now that I've gone through this process, it's almost you want to do something completely different the next time. And again, that's what to me has been the most, you know, in a sense of discoveries that now there are two canvases that I can go between. So that frees up a lot of creative energy that I can stream into two different kind of avenues. And, and who knows what else comes along that you can engage in and other digital revolutions that allows you new space. Um, so it's like Christmas. You never really know what you're going to get until you get it. Well, Nicholas, the show is Too Old to Die Young. I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and congratulations on the show. Thank you very much. And that's it for this week on The Real. I'm Mark Olson. Thanks to our producer, Katie Cooper, our engineers, Mike Heflin and Joe Fish, and LA Times Studios. Listen to The Real on Apple, Spotify, 
wherever you get your audio. And subscribe to our new Play Next newsletter to get the latest from the LA Times audio team. Go to latimes.com forward slash play next. Okay.